Good morning. It's the second Friday of February, February 12th. Right now you are listening to Talking About Art. In January of 2021, we lost one of our own. Talking About Art is presented every second and fourth Fridays of the month, and it's the mission of Talking About Art to be a resource for artists and all those who relish and support the arts in our community. Through our programming, I wish to provide in-depth interviews and stories about the artists, writers, and poets of our community, and we reach a potential listening audience of over 300,000. We've been broadcasting Talking About Art for over eight years now, with some 200-plus broadcasts in the KMUZ archives, and they are all about mid-Willamette Valley artists. In May of 2013, artist Eric West and the creator of Talking About Art interviewed James Kirk, and it will be clips from that uh, interview uh, that you'll be hearing today. In January of 2021, we lost one of the most beloved artists in our community, Leo James Kirk. James Kirk. He leaves behind his daughters, Linda and Nancy, and his wife of some 47 years, Alice. And he leaves us behind as well, the artists of the Mid-Willamette Valley, who have come to know him as a watercolorist, teacher, mentor, and friend. He was 95 years of age, and come this July 17th, he would have been 96. He was one of the greatest generation, that incredible generation of Americans who grew up in the midst of the Great Depression, went into the European and Pacific theaters of war during World War II. Some went on to serve in the next war of the early 1950s, the Korean War. They raised families, built industries, and vaulted America onto the world stage as one of the greatest nations ever to have existed in the history of the human race. Along the way, they witnessed the cultural divide and political upheaval via the counterculture and war in Vietnam in the, in the 60s. They were building their lives during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, his brother Robert Kennedy, and Martin Luther King. They were front row to the first landing on the moon, the rise of the Berlin Wall in 1961, and then its demolition 28 years later in 1989. They lived Watergate, 911, the political maelstrom of the last decade and beyond, the seemingly perpetual wars in the Middle East, and of late, this pandemic. And who knows how many World Series and Super Bowls. But one by one, they are leaving us, and what a legacy they are leaving behind. James Kirk was part of that legacy. The arc of his life began in Whittier, a small town in Southern California, where he grew up poor, and as a kid, he delivered newspapers and magazines. He could hardly be called a good student. He dropped out in the 10th grade, which did not serve him well at one point in his life, as you will hear later on. But he always drew, and yet humorously he says that in school he flunked coloring. 
uh, fell in art really late because in World War II is kind of where my career started. Quit high school at 16. Uh, very poor student in school. And uh, never, I hated school. Kicked around a lot of schools, L.A. And see, that was, we were always on relief. We were very, very poor. Everyone was poor. So we never considered ourselves poor because everyone seemed to be the same. You know, one pair of shoes, one pair of socks. I always drew, and I didn't do well in school with art at all. In fact, I flunked coloring. I, I never forgot that as long as I live. During World War II, he served in the Coast Guard as a radar man aboard U.S. Navy ships, where most of his action took place in the Pacific Theater. While aboard the USS Hunter, he participated in the invasions of Guadalcanal and Bougainville in the Solomon Islands. He served on the USS Burlington, a patrol frigate, on missions up and down the coast of New Guinea. It was during his military service where he got his first break as an artist, or more accurately, a cartoonist. When I was in the service, I started drawing cartoons about life aboard ship. I never let anyone know they were my cartoons and I, at night I put them on the bulletin board and I woke up one morning my cartoon was gone over the speaker my name was piped and enlisted I don't think even chief petty officers even officers were piped on a, on a PA system and your pipe you know mm -hmm. I have this I have this Kirk you know, flunky, third class, and I was the lowest rate, and first class seaman, report to the captain's cabin on the double. Never, all the time I was on that ship, an enlisted man was ever piped to the captain's cabin. So I, everybody looked at me on the mess deck, you know, tray, I dropped it right there, and then the ladder to the officer's quarter was right in the middle of the mess deck. And I ran up to the officer's country, it's called, and I got up there and I ran down, got down to the end, in the last was the stateroom, which was the captain's cabin, and then the executive officers. I ran down to the end, stopped, and there was the captain, his back to me, and all my cartoons that I had drawn were all over the floor and they were all everywhere and his back was to me. Never forget this. My God, my heart. I thought it'd come right out of my chest. This really was the start of his career. The captain orders that no one was to touch the cartoons and saw to it that every one of them was preserved. At this point, James started to sign them with his name, whereas before he remained anonymous. The captain saw to it that he be given whatever he needed to continue his work, pens, ink, paper, and even a studio located in the cool storage room to produce cartoons. Every spare moment he'd create, and at night at times the captain would join James to toss around ideas for Kirk to draw. Later on he was working in a Navy hospital, 
but he was wasting his time there until another friend of his, a surgeon at the hospital, took him aside and changed his life. And because of his help, Kirk was off to art school in Los Angeles. I was in a naval hospital. I was wasting my time. And finally, a, a doctor, a surgeon, got me going. He could see that I was, couldn't read or write. He lined it up so I could get into an art school in Los Angeles. This surgeon, a Navy surgeon, said I would have uh, time between surgeries, what he did. And uh, he would say, well, I'm going to give you 90 days off. I want you to take that time and go look at all the art schools. And here's a list. He had his secretary make a list of all the art schools, GI approve, uh, that I could go to. And I thought, boy, that's, you know, you know, people always took an interest in me. And I, had, I didn't have any money to give them. And so I went around to the art schools. Probably it was a 30-day liberty they gave me. Because I did go right back to the Naval Hospital and I met with the doctor and, uh, and he said, well, did you uh, go look at those art schools? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, which ones did, did you like? So I named off, you know, uh, Art Center and I, and I, well, Chenard's was my favorite. And uh, he said, okay. Uh, he said, that's the one you'd, you'd go to? He said, yes, sir, but that has a waiting list of a couple hundred people. And I says, no way. Hell, I'm going to be able to get into this Chenard's, right? And Art Center had, had a huge Art Center, Jepson's. I can't even think of the names of them now. And uh, so he said, okay. And then he always talked to his nurse, who is the clipboard, writing these things down. And he said, okay, well, I'll see you tomorrow at bed call or bed check or whatever it was. And then he came back and he said, okay, well, I'm now going to give you a term off and you're going to go to Chenard's. I said, but sir, that's got the biggest waiting list. He said, I have friends. Uh, but his lack of scholastic habits, however, caused him to quit art school. And at a friend's urging, he sought another alternative as he was off to Kansas. So anyway, when I was in art school, the gods were looking after me again because I became friends with a guy who had been in the military. He'd been an officer in the military. And... Uh, we hung out together, and I, I, by then I, I had tried college, UCLA, George Pepperdine, because I could go to any school I wanted to. It was an unbelievable situation, but I thought it was better to go to school than to work. But going to school to me was hanging out at the beach. So anyway, eventually uh, I took all the tests as to what I was fitted for. And I scored really high in persuasion because I, I'm a salesman. And I, and I love doing that. I, after the war, I 
on my own. I sold cars or anything I could get, I would sell it. So this guy, uh, one night, suggested I quit art school and go to back to college. In the testing of persuasion, then you looked at all the fields that persuasion counted. And the first thing on top was an attorney. And this is before Perry Mason. I thought, well, that sounds pretty damn exciting. I haven't been in trouble with the law. I've never been to court. I don't know why I thought an attorney would be exciting. And so I uh, quit art school, just got on a, uh, on a plane, and I found a good law school and a good college, which is Washburn University, Topeka, Kansas. So anyway, I got on the plane and left Los Angeles. I thought if I got away from the beach and uh, <laughs> you can't get much farther away from the beach can you <laughs> he goes to Kansas to start on his new track of beginning his pre-law coursework but quickly he discovers that things are not as he thought they might be but here again he runs into yet another friend who takes him under his wing and wisely counsels him that he's not cut out for his new line of study, accounting, and to look to using his talent for art. So I went back to Kansas and stepped off the plane and it was over 100 degrees and the humidity was awful. So I started a pre-law and a pre-law there were four areas that you could major in. Uh, all of them had to read and write. And so it was accounting, English, history, political science. Those were the four majors pre-law. And all of them way over my head. <laughs> so I thought, well, accounting. I was a wheeler dealer. Mm-hmm. And you know me. <laughs> and boy. So I went in as an accounting major. And my accountant, he loves to hear this story because it's so funny to him. And I can't add two and two. <laughs> so I spent one year majoring in accounting. C's were passable. And I got a couple. So somewhere along the line. I was a political science teacher, and I was still drawing cartoons. He called me into his office to talk about my low grade at midterm. Carl Svensson was his name. And I drew him all the time in class. And so I, I drew him all the time, bushy eyebrows. He was perfect. And so he just said to me, he said, well, I tell you, you're, you're sitting on your brains. And yeah, I don't think you have a chance of what you're trying to do. And he said, gosh, if I could draw like that, as he turned and pointed to a, a cartoon I had done of him, you've you got to get out of this, what you're trying to do. And you've got to go into art. And I said, well, I was in art nine months, and I wasn't very good at that either. He said, well, we i got to sit down with you and just turn change your whole course of study, you've got to be an art major. Left his office, clicking my heels to each side, saying, I'm free. So then I went 
over to the art department. And on down the road he went to gain an education in art, his true calling. But it was during one class that his second calling, teaching, made itself known. And then my uh, teaching career happened very accidental also. And uh, my being alive today at this age is still accidental, I think. So, I, uh, I was used to be in class, and there were methods of teaching art in those days. Uh, walk into a class, and they'd say, okay, draw, and the prof would leave. Then you come back at the end of the term, and you turn your work in, and they go, okay, that's failure, or that's pass. All the time, I was in the university art classes, I would be uh, helping someone. Uh, you know, I would say, well, I'll tell you, I would draw that, life drawing, of course. I'd draw that more like this, I'd never draw it on their piece. But they did that a lot in school, and both the art institutes and the university art classes, they draw on your work, and you'd be sitting there drawing or painting from a model, and, and I'd be drawing, viewing it from here. The instructor would come up, he'd be standing here, it's like another model, and you know you got that hand, that arm, that finger, it looks like this, and he'd draw it from his position, and I thought, God, that's dumb. So anyway, and, and uh, they were good teachers too, it was just different methods. I was drawing showing her, you know, oh no, you got to have foreshortening, you got to do this and stuff. And, and I did that a lot, especially for her, because I liked her. The instructor came up behind me, and he got me so mad at me doing that, taking over his class. He threw my drawing board, my drawing, everything across the studio, and threw me out of the class, not just for the day, not, I came back and promised him I'd never touch one of his students again. And so that night I went over and visited that girl, and she was in her bedroom on the second floor. And uh, standing outside, she said, oh, I feel so sorry for you today. And I said, well, I, I deserved it. I shouldn't have done that. And she said, no. He says, I learned in that class more from you than I did from the teacher. You should be a teacher. <laughs> and I said, me? A teacher? Impossible. He said, no. So the next thing I did, uh, I started taking ed classes. I loved it. I loved it. And off he goes to learn his second greatest passion, teaching. Eventually, he graduated from Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas, with a Bachelor of Fine Arts uh, degree, and further down the road, he earned his Master's of Arts from Colorado State College in Greeley, Colorado. Until one day, he runs into a friend from school by the name of Francis. Francis is working in an employment department in Kansas. There, she alerts him to a teaching job in Bonner Springs, Kansas, where they need an art teacher, desperately. 
And she went, Kirk, yeah, I haven't seen you for a long time. Where you been? I said, well, I've been in graduate school. And uh, uh, she said, well, you were an ed major, art ed major, weren't you? I said, I, I, did, I did get a degree in that, too. And uh, she said, well, a job just came through in Bonner Springs, Kansas, nine miles from Kansas City, Kansas. And they needed an art teacher desperately. And that's the only way I got a job in the school. I'd be really desperate. So, <laughs> so, so uh, I thought, well, I am broke. I don't own a car. I don't have any money. And she said, well, here's the guy, superintendent schools in Bonner Springs, Kansas. So I got on a Greyhound bus. The Greyhound bus stopped at the drugstore in the middle of, of Bonner Springs and I got off the bus and there was Clarence H. C. Branson, the superintendent, and he was superintendent and principal of the grade school. And I think he, he was a janitor too. And he's waiting for me. Well I got the street and he said, Well we're gonna go meet with the school board. <laughs> and uh, so he walked up the main street of Bonner Springs, which was on a hill. And we got to the funeral parlor. That's where we were gonna meet this head of the school board. And up the top of the stairs, went into the room there, right, we were gonna go to a funeral. And then here came the rest of the funeral party, the school board. So I did not want this job absolutely did not this job and I think I put my worst foot forward and my worst foot forward it seemed like it was the best foot and, uh, they went for it they hired you oh god yeah <laughs> they were desperate they were really desperate <laughs> it's so funny and he loved it I loved it I loved the kids I loved the kids and that's my first interest, of course, it's always been elementary. I don't have a degree in art and, and my degrees are in fine art. And I was an imposter. All my life I've been an imposter. I didn't tell you this when you're taking classes for you because I didn't want you to drop the class. Well, how did you end up coming to OCE then? Well, I, I started out at Bonner Springs and I taught, you know, all the grades from first grade through high school and uh, in two buildings. Then I thought, well, I got to get out of here. And most of the teachers were making $2,800, $1,950. Some were making $2,400 a year. Uh, so I would make it $3,200 a year. Can you ever imagine making that much money? I stayed there a couple years and I decided I wanted to uh, move up to high school. I started interviewing at high schools, and all the high schools I picked, uh, they wanted someone with experience. So finally a, a job came up, and it was in Dodge City, Kansas. But art and music choirs were really important in the Midwest. I ended up in Dodge City for an interview, and it was a Boot Hill Day. And all the bands from all the areas were there. And I thought, well, what a place this is. 
So I uh, interviewed and they gave me uh, the junior high job. They took me upstairs and I met one of the best art teachers I'd ever seen in my and uh, talked to in my whole life. We became very good friends. He was moving and he was moving to uh, become the art teacher at uh, Hayes, Kansas. So I looked at his junior high job and I, I, he was so organized, he was so wonderful. I thought, oh, what? be a fool to take this job, follow this guy. And so I went downstairs to the, the superintendent and the principal. I told myself, oh, no, I don't want this job. I said, I don't know what it would take to keep this guy here, but you just in my opinion, just lost the best art teacher in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> so I was selling them this guy. So they upped my salary $400 on the spot. And, okay. And, uh, and they must have liked the approach. If you didn't hear an answer to the question about how we got to OCE, well, there really wasn't one. <laughs> it seems there was rarely a direct line of cause and effect in James' life. However, eventually he did become an Oregon resident, and part of his teaching career was at Oregon College of Education in Monmouth as of 1963. He retired 25 years later as Professor Emeritus of Art from Western Oregon University. He continued to teach art education for the next 10 years at Oregon State University in Corvallis. And indeed, James' greatest impact was in his teaching. Listen to these next three clips. One of the great things about you as a teacher is you did you do encourage people to go their own direction. That uh, that you. you don't you don't ask them to copy what you do. You let them go in their own direction. When I first uh, heard your name and I was looking to go to school uh, for art instruction. The group at WASC, Western Oregon State College, had the reputation of being one of the strongest uh, art programs in the state. And, uh, you know, they were second to none. And it was it was you and uh, Dan Cannon, uh, Peter Stone, uh, Jim Mattingly. You, you guys had a reputation for being a really strong uh, faculty. We owe all that to Cannon. He has a way of, uh, oh gosh, a salesmanship about him. That he, and he never sold Cannon as much as he sold the department. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to get here and get this cohesive uh, group of people, which is impossible in art. He knew it, but he came as close to getting... Uh, artists to be cohesive that's hard well there was a there was an expectation too of your uh, you faculty needed to show make work and get it out in the public and show it on a regular basis all the schools are that way the art people have to have very big egos and you have to be in the newspaper you have to show and that's what I try really hard to do. I, what I push is you go to get in every show you can possibly get in, every gallery you can possibly get in. 
uh, Raleigh Westbrook. You know Raleigh? I do, yes. And uh, when he came here, you know, I said, okay, you have to be in shows. Uh, he's very good at that. And a lot of them, you know, all the River Gallery people have to have big egos. And I think that's what the Seattle Seahawks coach does. <laughs> you all follow football? <laughs> Not much. No, I'm sorry. Well, he tries to make them all stars. You know that all my students are my best students. All my models are my best model. And I'll be standing there, you know, Hillary over there. I'll, I'll introduce you as my best student, and then someone behind me will say, I thought I was your best student. <laughs> You see that piece that Gay Hopkins did of me on my bike in a frame all around the frame is C plus, C plus, C plus, C plus. I didn't, I don't think I saw that. Well, you know, my favorite saying was C plus. Uh You know, and I did that with grade school kids because I've never stopped teaching grade school. And I taught my my college and graduate students like they were fifth grade. A lot of them sensed it right away and said, stop treating us like grade school. I said, well, you're not that good. I found this illuminating. Here, James talks about a technique he used in his teaching, the Da Vinci trick. One um, exercise you showed me, or showed the class, that really ended up making a big difference in how I saw things was the glass drawing. It's a Renaissance trick, and they really come out with that now. You were uh, doing it on uh, the windows in the classroom. You'd uh, have people take a Sharpie and close one eye, draw on a piece of glass what they saw, and then um, put their piece of paper onto that and light it from behind so they could transfer the lines onto the paper and use it as a a base for a watercolor painting. And I learned that from uh, Leonardo when we were in junior high together. (laughs) Yeah, the Da Vinci boys, huh? (laughs) See, all those are old ideas. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're all old ideas. And I'm sure the Egyptians did it. And uh, we know the Romans did. But it was something that I I followed out longer uh, after I'd taken your class it actually taught me to see perspective in a way uh, that I hadn't seen before. Well, you know, I I messed with that for a long time. A lot of the profs, when they saw what I was doing, they just hated that idea because they uh, thought of it as paint by number. I don't know what they thought. But here's the thing. Listen to how using this Da Vinci trick how he transformed one of his students. And more to the point, listen to James' passion for teaching. I had this guy, I would recruit students through my life drawing, or in all my classes. I had this guy who was a gorgeous guy. He was a footballer and he was a star. He was a star in track. And I was going to recruit him for a life drawing class. And he says, well, you know, they will stand at the thing. I can't draw. I was terrible in art in school. He, he came and, of course, his first drawings looked like some kid that had never seen a, anything before. He's, it was awful. And so he came into the office with his drop slip. And I said, somehow I can't 
lose you. You're too smart. And uh, all the Renaissance guys were smart. And art was not a place you put the dummies. So I said, if, if I could teach you a trick, uh, would you practice at night? Do you have a model? And he said, yes. So he came in and I said, every night you'll do these exercises in the glass drawing with the model. Mm -hmm. And you know right away the perspective, you know. Uh, and so he, he started off and then we'd put him on the floor and then I would tell him mechanical things he was doing wrong. You know, well, your, your head's moving or this and blah, blah, blah. And then he, he kept practicing. And so in the life drawing class, he kept getting better and better and better. Then every day, you know, five days a week, he'd come with drawings he did at home. His wife was the model. And then his wife started drawing him. And then she, he'd bring her drawings too. And then they would correct each other as to how they were seen. And so at the end, what we would do, we'd have the the gym, and we'd line them up from the first line drawing to the last one, and then we'd count them, and then you'd go through it and see how many of them you'd give yourself an A. I did it too, with them, and that got me working. And so, at the end, he was one of the best ones in the whole damn class. Huh. And so I said, well, can I now tell him what you did and how you did it? And we told him about the glass drawing. Eventually, he did quit teaching formally. I can't track. That's why I quit teaching. I can't track with my thoughts. I, and if you play this black, and my wife, of course, taught English and speech for 100 years. Mm -hmm. and she, she had to leave the house now because she couldn't take it any longer. I see. I, 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 a lot of incomplete sentences, and and I'm really, really great at dangling modifiers when I speak, and I, even when I write, I do that. It's all because, you know, you get to a certain age and you become garrulous in your speech patterns. He retired from teaching formally, but he still wanted to keep on teaching, and so teaching privately became his best solution. When I retired, I didn't want to give up teaching, so then I, I stayed teaching, and a guy who's in the show, uh, he, I was having a, a one-man show in Ashland. He asked me, he said, well, I'm a retired engineer, have you ever thought about taking on private students? Because I hear that you just retired from uh, Western Oregon State College or wherever that was. And by then I was also teaching at U of O, I mean OSU. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, well, I never, I never thought about that, but I am wondering what I'm going to do about the teaching when I leave, when they force me out. And so he said, well, I'd like to come down and work with you. Carl uh, came down. He came down for a couple hours. He stayed all day. And we drew and we painted. And he took a list of stuff to buy and, and start working with. 
and uh, uh, then it came time to pay and they got out of his checkbook and every time we tell the story because we've told the story he tells it and I tell it and it varies and of course he retired but he still consults they're always calling him he'll go to LA and, uh, and uh, has a big degree in engineering <laughs> and so came to the end of that lesson or whatever we were doing he said so what do I owe you and I said oh I don't know I've never done this before I I don't even know how much money I was making as a professor of art except I, I it seemed like enough you know to put two meals a day on the table and uh, he said well I'll, I, would this be enough and he wrote me this big check and I thought, wow. he says, well, that's not as much as I make consulting, but I think that's fair. I said, well, it's way over what it's worth. And he, I tore the check in half and he gave it to him. I said, I got more from you than you got from me, I'm sure. <laughs> and so it's 21 years almost to the day. Let me close the interview with this. It was Kirk's last show and last reception, and when he was asked if he'd like to go through with it, well, he refers to its success as a miracle. It's a, a miracle that I was able. I couldn't have finished that, done that show if it hadn't been for my student, a retired engineer from Corvallis. Uh, because I turned him down, I said, no way can I do that. And my wife has to do so much for me. She's been doing it for 45 years. Then he, this engineer, turned to the river gallery person and said, we can do it. And he did it. He, he did a lot of the batting, a lot of the framing. I want to hug all those people. saved my life during the uh, reception is I sat in my wheelchair and did not move and boy that saved me uh, so I uh, yeah it was fun boy and I tell you there wasn't space to walk in that show I bet not well I don't get around much anymore I don't have 40 more years to live like I would like to have James Kirk, you will be missed. The family requests a, a donations in his name be sent to the Dan and Gail Cannon Art Scholarship Fund at Western Oregon University, Monmouth, or to COVID relief programs or food banks of your choice. Bowman Funeral Home in Dallas, Oregon is caring for the family. To leave an online condolence or to share a memory with the family, go to BowmanFuneralHome.com. That's BowmanFuneralHome.com. And feel free to go to the Talking About Art Facebook page and make your comments about today's broadcast. I'd love to hear from you. 
Talking About Art is presented every second and fourth Fridays of the month. But on every first and third Friday at 9 a.m., I invite you to tune in to Ann McBride's and Ed Shope's Theater Talk. And also stay tuned just after 10 o'clock for the next program, Poetry on the Air. Uh, that is a program uh, produced by Steve Slamenda, and it features the poets and their events in the Mid-Willamette Valley. And that, again, starts just after 10 o'clock. Yes, we are an all-volunteer community radio station, and we thrive only because of your financial help and support. So if you enjoy theater talk, poetry on the air, talking about art, go to the kmuz.org website, hit the Contribute Now button, and have at it. By the way, your donation is tax-deductible, and thank you very much in advance for your support. I'll get today's broadcast entered into the KMUZ program archives, and then I'll post its link on the Talking About Art Facebook page when it's ready to go. Talking About Art is great, but now it's your turn to go out and do something about art. I'm your host, Joel Zach. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.